Hope you'll take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 7. Mark 7. Why did you hit your brother? Why are you yelling at each other? Why did you take his things? Why did you push him off the couch? Why are you always picking on him? Parents, any of these things sound familiar? Questions you've asked? I'm sure you could add many more specific examples to your list. These are the questions we ask, but I wonder if any of us are ever satisfied with the answers we receive back. I know around our house, usually when we ask these kinds of questions, the answers we get back are almost always some sort of blame shifting. An explanation of what the other person did to provoke. Probably not the only one to experience that. He hit me first. He called me a name. He took my things first. He was in my spot. He's annoying. Pretty par for the course. The reason I did this is because he did that. Now, it's easy for me to start with an illustration about someone else. How they shift the blame and point the finger outside of themselves. But of course, this kind of blame shifting and finger pointing is something that we all do, isn't it? I think if we're honest, we are all too familiar with the impulse to blame someone or something else outside of ourselves for our bad behavior. I yelled because he cut me off. I lost my temper because I'm under a lot of stress. I lied because my boss's goals are unrealistic. I was impatient because I didn't get enough sleep. I'm sure we can all fill in our own examples, our own reasons. We are quick to blame other people and other things for our own sinful reactions. We blame the circumstance. We blame the situation. We, we justify our actions by pointing to something or someone else besides ourselves. And I think often we do convince ourselves that the problem is not inside of us. The problem's outside. So, if the situation was different or the other person was different, then I wouldn't have acted that way. I wouldn't have sinned. We shift the blame, and it's human nature. It's a response that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam said it was because of the woman you gave me. Eve said it was because of the serpent. And they each shift the blame. And so do you. So do I. We convince ourselves that the reason we sin is because of something outside of our control. It was done to me rather than coming out of me. But then we have the scriptures. And the scriptures are clear that the reason we sin isn't ultimately a problem of environment. It's not a problem with our situation or with other people. The reason we sin is because of a problem in our own hearts. 
Sure, your situation may make it harder. The people you live with may make it more difficult. There's all kinds of pressure points. But the Bible is clear that if we sin, it's not because of anything without, but because of what's within. So we come to our passage this morning, we're going to see this clearly. That we sin because we're sinners, with sinful passions and with sinful desires. We are a people ruled by sinful hearts. And if you want an example, is this really in the Bible? Think about James chapter 4. James asks this great question, such a, a penetrating question. What causes quarrels and fights among you? I'll pause so you can fill in your answers. What causes quarrels and fights in your house? What causes quarrel and fights in your workplace? Well, James doesn't leave a fill in the blank. He answers the question and says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you, that you desire and you do not have, so you murder? Maybe just in your heart, but murder nonetheless. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. What's James saying? The reason we have fights and the reason we have divisions isn't because of other people primarily. It's because of the condition of our own hearts. We are ruled by our passions and our desires. We want what we want and we want it too badly. We want it so much that we're willing to sin in order to get it. So ultimately, it's not a problem with something outside of us. It's an issue of the heart. And I think we're all guilty. We don't recognize the source of our sin. We don't identify it correctly. Or we at least try to deceive ourselves about what the source of our sin is. But that's not the only place where we have misunderstandings. We also misunderstand the solution for our sin. And now I know if we, if we all went around the room and I asked for a theological explanation of where your sin comes from and how your sin should be dealt with, you could all give me really biblical answers. But what I'm talking about is how you live day to day. And, and you can understand what you really believe by how you reason through things. We've given the example, I sin because of what? And then what do we do to try to justify our sin, to try to make things right? I think far too often we think the solution is outward. We think that somehow we can atone for our sins and earn the favor of God through something that we do. Oh, I don't believe in a works-based salvation. No, but don't we live like we do sometimes? We try to make up for our sin, to cover it with our good deeds. We talked about this last week, that we do right things outwardly to try to justify ourselves, and often we, we never deal with the heart. I said this last week also, that it's possible for us to do all the right things outwardly and still have hearts that are far from God. And you may know what this is like. You try to give yourself a pass because of all the things you've done your faithful church attendance, your faithful giving, your generosity, checking off all the boxes of what it looks like to be a good Christian. 
And as you do these things, you deceive yourself into thinking that these things are keeping you in right standing before God. But once again, we miss the heart. We find ourselves focused on what's outside and not what's inside and what's true. A lot of this is what we considered last week in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. Try to remember the scene with me. Jesus is rebuking the scribes and Pharisees because they were giving and devoting themselves to these outward forms of religion. But Jesus says, for all that they've done, their hearts were far from God. Now these are men, remember, of good reputation, known for their piety, for their adherence to the rules of religion. They kept the law. They lived by the tradition of the elders, but for all their outward religion, Jesus says they are hypocrites. He quoted the prophet Isaiah, Mark 7, verse 6. These people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. Remember how the conversation started? It wasn't that Jesus approached the Pharisees and the scribes. No, they, they came to him. And they came with this question, why do the disciples eat with defiled hands? And their question wasn't innocent. They were accusing Jesus and accusing the disciples of not following their standard of religion. Not following the rules of ritual purification. Remember they had this whole system of how they would remain clean and undefiled. This was a way of life for them. Washing properly not eating things that were unclean, not touching things that were unclean. And when those things inevitably happened, a process of ritual cleansing. So they go to Jesus. They point fingers. But Jesus says back to them, you have an appearance of godliness, but your heart is callous. Not only that, we're going to see this morning that Jesus is going to point out not only their situation in their hearts, but that the system that they've developed for trying to attain righteousness was insufficient. See, they assessed the problem as something outside of them. And they created a solution that was external. But what Jesus is trying to get them to see is that the real problem was not on the outside. The real problem was not external. The problem was internal. And likewise, the solution needs to be Internal. They had focused on the wrong problem and offered the wrong solution. The reason for outward cleansing isn't sufficient because the problem isn't on the outside. The problem is on the inside. And I think we can fall into the same trap as them. Looking only on the outside. And if we can clean up the outside and justify the outside, we're good. But if we're not careful, we could be like the Pharisees with hearts that are far from God. So in that mind, let's consider what else Jesus has to say to these men, to this crowd. Mark chapter 7, we're going to be considering verses 14 to 23. Hear the word of God. Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. 
but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus Jesus declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within. They defile a person. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. We ask that God will add his blessing to the reading and preaching of his word. I want to say on the front end, this is a monumental text. For a couple of reasons. In one sense, it's hugely important because of what it says about the Old Testament purification laws. Jesus is starting the process of this massive transition, changing the way the people of God think and live. He's come to fulfill the law. There's change coming in the way they practice religion. This text is monumental in that regard. But it's also really important because of what it says about the condition and the centrality of the heart. That our struggles and our sin are matters of what's going on inside. And, by extension, any change that we're going to experience in the fight against sin, any change you want to make in the progress of holiness starts with the change on the inside. It's far more than the behavior modification. We need new hearts. We see all that in this text. But if we're going to understand it rightly, we, we can't get too far away from the context. I already mentioned this conversation between Jesus, the scribes, and the Pharisees. Jesus just rebuked them for their outward form of religion, their hearts that are far from God, even though the outside looks great. He rebukes them first, and we considered that last week. But now, in our passage this morning, he actually starts to answer the original question they asked. What was their original question? Go back to verse 5. Why do the disciples eat with defiled hands? Why aren't your disciples following the rules for ritual purification and As we come to the text, we see that Jesus actually starts addressing that topic, this idea of clean and unclean, defiled and undefiled, and how we transition from one to the other. We're told he addresses the crowd. In verse 14, he says this. He's been talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, and we're told that he turns to this crowd of people that have probably gathered to hear the conversation between the religious leaders and Jesus This crowd is formed. He turns to the crowd and he says this. And I wonder if maybe their conversation had been a little quieter between them. He turns to the crowd and he says, hear me, all of you, and understand. I picture a conversation between a parent and a kid dealing with an issue here. Actually, the whole family needs to hear this, okay? Hear and understand which is something that Jesus has said several times in the Gospel of Mark up to this point. And when he says this, he's always on the verge of saying something really significant. 
everything Jesus says is significant, right? But he's about to address something new, different, revolutionary. And so he says, listen, hear, pay attention. And he says this. This is the extent of his message to the crowd. Verse 15. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Hear this. Understand. Now for us, you may hear that and think, okay, that's not revolutionary. But think about their situation. Think about what we talked about last week, about this whole system of ritual purification, this generational tradition. This constant work of avoiding defilement and then being cleansed from defilement when it inevitably comes. It was this daily way of life. This was all they knew. There are some things we eat and there are some things we do not eat. There are places we go and there are places that we do not go. There are things we touch and there are things that we do not touch. And if we touch or if we taste, then we must be cleansed. Yet now Jesus is saying something different. Jesus is saying the things on the outside can't defile you. Oh, but there's defilement. You're defiled by what comes from within. And consider what that means. Because if you're not supposed to eat something, you can avoid eating it. And if you're not supposed to touch something, you can avoid touching it. But he's saying the problem is much closer to you than you expected. Your problem, the reason you are unclean, is because of what is already inside of you. So he speaks to the crowd generally, but without any explanation. But then as we see over and over in the gospel, then he goes away with his disciples and we have a a fuller conversation. Verse 17, and when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Once again, conversation we've heard before, right? Between Jesus and his disciples. Again, they have a question. Again, he's critical of the fact that they do not understand. After all the time that they have spent with him, after all they have heard him say about sin and about faith and about right standing before God, they still do not get it. We think back to chapter two. We've, we've seen the same thing with different examples over and over. Why don't your disciples fast? Jesus says, I'm the bridegroom. You don't fast when the bridegroom is with you. Why don't your disciples keep the Sabbath? I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And now again, they struggle to understand. They don't understand this new way that Jesus is pointing them towards, and it's not all their fault. They've been raised and taught these things. This has been their way of life. But Jesus expresses what I think is a a bit of frustration, godly frustration at their slowness to hear. But do you see what he does next? He takes time to teach them again. Aren't you glad that we have a God who is patient when we are slow to understand? You know the scriptures. We know the gospel. We know that we aren't saved by our works. 
And yet we still fall into the trap of trying to justify ourselves. And we still think, based on our actions, that we can somehow earn God's favor based on what we do. We allow our hearts to grow cold. Do you not also understand? Aren't you glad we have a God who's patient, who's given us his word and his spirit and one another so we can continue to be reminded of what's true? We see that kindness and patience in Christ as he rebukes his disciples for their slowness to hear, but then takes time to teach them again. And as he teaches them, we get two important truths and two things that we'll consider in the rest of our time together. First, that defilement is not a matter of what's outside of us. And second, that defilement is a matter of the heart. Our hearts are corrupt and need cleansing. So we'll look at the words of Christ and unpack each of those things. First, defilement is not a matter of what's on the outside. Verse 18, Jesus explains, it sounds very similar to verse 15, but now he's in a different environment and he's explaining it now to his disciples. And he says, do you not see, just think about it, that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him. We stop there and think, that's different than what they've been told their whole life. But Jesus says, don't you see? It enters not your heart, but your stomach. And then it's expelled. Once again, it seems basic to us, but this is revolutionary for the disciples. Men who have grown up being taught the importance of being ritually clean. Again, things they shouldn't touch, things they shouldn't eat, places and people they should not go near. And if they did eat or touch or come into contact with something unclean, there was this process of being cleansed. This was their way of life. But Jesus comes and says, there's nothing that you can eat that can defile you. Even bacon. There's nothing you can eat that can defile you. There's nothing that comes from the outside that can make you unclean. And in order to make his point, he appeals not only to logic, but to bodily functions. Our translations actually tame it down a little bit. He says, food doesn't go into your heart, it goes into your stomach, and then it goes from there into the sewer. It goes from there into a pile of waste. How can food that's going to go through you and end up as waste change your status before God? He's making the point that outward actions are not what defile us. What we eat is not what makes us impure. And on the flip side, the things outside also cannot be what saves us. What's outside cannot defile, and what's outside cannot save. But that begs the question, wasn't that the teaching of the Old Testament? Aren't these the very thing that God had told his people? I've read Leviticus 11. I've read Deuteronomy 14. Long lists of clean and unclean animals. It's true. God commanded his people to do these things. To avoid these things. But what the people failed to recognize is that it was never the actions themselves that made the difference. God was always concerned with the heart. See, the outward practices, the external actions were symbols, illustrations, shadows that were meant to remind the people of their need for spiritual cleansing and divine forgiveness. And God did expect them to live this way. 
But what he was doing was showing them their true need. Never actually defiled. What goes into us cannot defile us. Which is why we read in Hebrews 8 that the requirements of the law were a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. Hebrews 10, great passage. We read this. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, the law can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, if they could accomplish these things, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Here we see that all along, God's plan for the law was to point people to their ultimate need and to the ultimate solution. And now in this context, Jesus is calling people to recognize the true nature of salvation, the true problem and the true solution. I said it's a monumental text and one of the reasons is because Jesus is not only changing the way they think, but he's altering their practice of religion. He says in no uncertain terms, the condition of your heart isn't determined based on what you eat or don't eat. And we see Mark's parenthetical note here. In verse 19, thus he declared all foods clean. Mark at this point decides he's writing a study Bible. Here's the words of Jesus, but I need to insert a little explanation about what's going on here. Think about when Mark's writing, and he, this is inspired, so it's all tongue in cheek. But Mark is writing later, after the resurrection of Christ, after all these things have been done. Which means he can fully understand exactly what Jesus is saying at this point. Remember, Peter is likely the one, this is likely Peter's account, Mark's writing it. And we see the account in Acts chapter 10 when Peter has the vision and God tells him all things are clean. It's possible that that happened before Peter tells Mark to write these things. They've got this really big understanding at this point. Mark says, this is revolutionary. In this saying of Christ, he declared all foods clean. Why? Why now? Why at this point? Because Jesus had come. The symbol was no longer needed. With the coming of Jesus, shadows and copies of coming salvation were no longer necessary. The thing or the person that they had been pointing to was now in the flesh. They were the shadow. He was the substance. So we ask the question, did Jesus come to do away with the law? Let me just quote the words of Christ. Matthew chapter five, verse 17. Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He has come as their fulfillment. Salvation is a matter of the heart. Salvation is by faith. It's by believing in Jesus, the one who kept the law perfectly and died as our substitute, that we can be ultimately cleansed. Thus, he declared all foods clean. 
We're not going to spend time here this morning, but I want you to take this week and read all of the epistles. Can you do that? Just read all the epistles and note how many times there's conversations about what should be eaten and what should not be eaten, about what should be touched and not touched, done and not done. This was a hard transition. If you want a starting point, if you don't have time to read it all, read Acts 10, read Galatians 2, Romans 14, 1 Corinthians chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11. All these are passages where the early church is still trying to sort these things out. But what we see over and over in all these passages is this affirmation, that defilement or uncleanness is not a matter of outward actions, it's a matter of the heart. And along the same line, salvation is not a matter of what we do, it's a matter of the condition of our hearts before God. Which leads us to what's probably the most important part of the text for us, because you probably were not going to avoid certain things at lunch for reasons of purity or unpurity. But we see in verses 20 to 23 is that we are a people who struggle with defilement. Verse 20. He said, well, to back up, it's not what's outside of you that's going to defile you, but verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. I don't think I can express how essential these verses are to us having a proper view of ourselves and of one another. And if we're ever going to make progress in the faith and help others make progress in the faith, we have to understand this. Jesus says, your problem is not outside of you. Your problem is not disordered behavior or disordered religion. Your problem is not your spouse. Your problem is not your kids. Your problem is not your job. Your problem is not your vehicle. Why do we lust? Why do we steal? Why do we murder and harbor hatred in our hearts? Why do we commit adultery, physically or mentally? Why do we covet? Why do we deceive? Why are we sensual, sinfully sensual? Why do we slander other people? Why do we live with pride and foolish hearts? It's because of the corruption of your heart. The problem is not outside of us. The problem is within us. We are born this way. We are all born with corrupt hearts, and so are your children, and that explains a lot, doesn't it? Our problem is not other people. Our problem is not the traffic. Our problem is not too much stress or too little sleep. It's not too little time or too little money. The reason we struggle to obey is because of our hearts. The problem, the root of the problem, is that we have hearts that are corrupted by sin. prophet Jeremiah said the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it or we go to the New Testament James chapter 1 let no one say when he is tempted I'm being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no man but every person is tempted how are we tempted when we're lured and enticed by our own desires 
We desire. And when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Scriptures are clear. Our hearts are wicked and full of wicked desires. Things outside of us don't tempt us to sin. We sin because of the sinfulness of our own hearts. Our envy, our lust, our anger, they come from within. There may be outside pressures, but all the pressure does is reveal what's already within us. The problem is not outside, the problem is inside. How's that for a feel-good message? But if we're ever going to live the way God has called us to live, we must understand the problem. If we're going to help one another to grow, we must understand the problem. Since the problem is inside of us, since the problem is our heart, we have to recognize that no amount of outward conformity can be the solution. We need our hearts to be changed, or to use the language of the text, to be cleansed, to be purified. And we cannot be changed through religious adherence. The Pharisees tried, didn't they? They based all their hope and their trust on what they could do on the outside. They gave themselves to legalistic conformity. They believed that they could do enough to cleanse themselves. And some of you have done the same thing. You have worn yourself out trying to check all the boxes. But your heart is still wicked. You've ordered your life in such a way that you don't touch or taste anything you're not supposed to. And on the outside, you're an example of right living. You've created a law and you've lived by it. The truth is, whether we admit it or not, many of us love legalism. Because legalism allows us to feel like we're in control. We can check all the boxes. But remember the warning of last week that our outward conformity is not enough. Cleansing the outside will not fix the heart. That's why Jesus said to the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. This is what he says. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate. Then the outside may be clean also. That's a whole other message. But it's the acknowledgement that the outside should get cleaned at some point. But what must get cleaned first? It's the heart. Only then will our behavior change. The problem has never been an outward problem. The solution has never been an outward solution. The inside needs to be cleansed or the outside will never be clean. We are sinful people with impure hearts and the only solution is to be changed from the inside out. I think if most of us know what it looks like to be saved by grace through faith. But it's so subtle, isn't it? That we start to rely on what we can do. We still measure ourselves and our status before God based on our behavior. I'll, I'll say this again. We are called to holiness. We should be faithful to gather with the church. We should be faithful to give. We should be quick to evangelize to serve 
But these things are meant to be the fruit of a heart that is changed, not the means by which we gain favor with God. We're called to remember that there's nothing that we can do on our own to change ourselves. But this was the ongoing struggle of the early church and of the church today. We see it with them. They kept trying to do all these things. I was thinking this week, over and over, as I worked through this passage about the time we spent back in Colossians, maybe a year, year and a half ago. Colossians chapter 2, Paul's writing to this church who's struggling with this change. I just want to read a portion of it to you, and it really should, I think, pop in our, in our ears and our hearts, considering what we've seen in, in Mark 7 this morning. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 16. Paul says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question to food or drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. That's what he says. These are a shadow of things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. So let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship and of angels and going into detail about visions puffed up without reason by sensuality of mind and not by holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Where does the growth come from? From the head that is Christ. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why are you still alive in the world? Excuse me. Why is if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that perish as they were used? according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom, promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Are you struggling with sin? There may be some things that help, some changes you can make, some behavior modification, but it's only a band-aid. Change must happen at the heart level. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. If you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. You see how similar that is to what Jesus is saying? Friends, we are not saved by our works. We are not sanctified by our works. Our salvation from start to finish is by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ. Our problem from the beginning has been the corruption of our hearts, but the good news is that Jesus came to give us new hearts. He came as the greater high priest, the greater sacrifice, the mediator of a new and better covenant. In Mark 7, we had the scribes and the Pharisees trying to live according to the law so they could be in right standing before God, but it's impossible, and that's why Jesus came. He came to do what we could not do. So I want to read another passage for you. I know I'm reading a lot, but it comes from all different angles in the Scriptures. Hebrews chapter 9. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through a greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing for us an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer 
sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will he purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive this promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The Bible is clear. Our hearts are deceitful, corrupt. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot earn his favor. But Jesus came so that all who repent of their sins and who trust him as the perfect sacrifice can be saved. We cannot clean ourselves. We are washed by his blood. Our consciences are cleansed so we can serve the living God. If you're here this morning and you're overwhelmed with your struggle against sin, or if you're exhausted from your never-ending attempts to earn the favor of God, I want you to find hope, freedom. Maybe you've been caught in the cycle of excuses that we mentioned at the start, blaming everything and everyone for your sin, trying to convince yourself that the problem is your circumstance. The problem is your spouse, your kids, your job, your lack of time, money, or sleep. If God had given me a different body, a different mood, if that's you, can I lovingly help you see through the words of Christ that the struggle with sin is not outside of you, it is within you. But this is good news. Because how do we change all the things around us? It's good news because while your situation may not change, you can still honor and please God because God changes hearts. In addition to that, you can rest in knowing that you don't have to earn his forgiveness for the sins that have occurred. You don't have to change yourself. In fact, you cannot. Your problem is too big. You can't fix the problem you have with religious commitments. But Jesus came to cleanse you and to set you free. So I want to encourage you, trust him. He is able. Perhaps you would pray the prayer of David that we read earlier in the service. It points out the seriousness of our sin and the source of our sin. Also the ability of God to cleanse us. This is David's prayer. I think it's a good prayer for us as we consider our text this morning. The problem is within us, but the solution is not something that we have to do. It's found in the mercy and grace of Christ. I'll end by reading again this prayer of David. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Notice the lack of blame shifting here. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach wisdom in the secret heart. 
Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. May this be our prayer. God, make us clean.